The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to Off the Wall. Jessica, nice to see you. It's fun to have you here in person. So for those of you listening, you will not be able to know this, but so I'll tell you that Jessica and I are actually sitting live together for the first time in our monument, and I'm using my air quotes here, podcast studio for the first time. It's fun to do this face-to-face. Yeah, this is a huge upgrade from what listeners may not know is I usually record in my closet. Yes, which is why we don't do much video. (laughs) Exactly. I learned this from an NPR reporter and obviously they're the best in sound, but she said, oh yeah, when she's on the road, she does her reporting sitting in a hotel closet. And I made a bookmark of that. So when we started doing this podcast and I was still in Texas, I thought, okay, (laughs) I'm going to have the best sound that I possibly can. And I'm going to sit in my closet to do that. So it's really nice to be in Monument's very impressive podcast studio. Yes, Yes, we have some interesting equipment here. And then, of course, not that you can tell this, but Aaron is with us today, and he is remote out of Austin, Texas today, but you won't be able to tell that as a listener either. So Aaron, welcome to Off the Wall today, and we're going to talk about the mid-year review. You ready? Yeah. Thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah. Buckle in, folks. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so we, we kind of talk about the podcast a little bit before we get going with it, and Aaron and I are definitely, we have some different opinions on recession, so we're going to talk about that a little bit and kind of compare and contrast our thoughts. We're going to refrain from calling it a debate, but it's a healthy discussion, right, Aaron? We're going to have a healthy discussion over over a recession. But really the reality of this is that, and I'm just going to say this as, as a disclaimer up front, none of what we talk about here today in terms of a mid-year review or a recap or a look back on the past six months, none of that should really matter to anybody who has already implemented a wealth management plan, right? And a wealth management plan, which includes proper and up-to-date assumptions, a well-constructed portfolio, which is then implemented to support the outcome of that wealth management plan with a high probability of success. And of course, the broken record of a cash reserve, which would serve to eliminate any need for liquidating assets during a pullback like now. So Jessica, maybe that's the best way for us to start off with is, is why don't we start off with a mid-year review in the context of what should be in everybody's wealth management plan now, and to the extent that they don't have a robust or complete wealth management plan, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about incorporating into that, given where we are right now with a 20%, roughly 20% pullback in the first half of the year? Well, I kind of want to answer that from the perspective. I mean, we'll talk about what is a wealth plan, but I want to answer it from like, why should everyone have a wealth plan? Because I know we've talked about on the podcast before with Daniel Crosby about how your perception of your risk tolerance is is more accurate when markets are down. But I think let's also talk about how your confidence is higher in your long-term success when markets are down if you have a long-term wealth plan. So I'm the type of person that wants to know 
what's going to happen before it actually happens. Like, I cannot go into a movie cold without having watched the trailer first. I'm the type of person that, like, if something new is going to happen, I want you to, I want you to walk me through how it's going to work, and so I know what to expect. You know, so like I say to our clients all the time, like, I kind of do wish I could predict the future. I wish I could tell you what's going to happen, but obviously no one can do that. So how do you feel confident in the decisions that you're making today that they're going to have a long-term likelihood of working out? And how you do that is by having a wealth plan. And, you know, as you said, by wealth plan, I mean a plan that accounts for all the complexities in your financial life, cash flow, taxes, estate planning, education planning, retirement, employee benefits businesses, properties, stock options, all these things, bringing them all together, and also sketches out all the what-ifs you're considering, retirement date, business sale amount, building a new house, all these things that you may be thinking about and you're like, okay, how, if I do decide to make this really big commitment to this decision, how's that going to impact my long-term success? You know, am I going to be okay when I'm in my 90s, right? No one wants to be running out of money at the end of life. And then Thirdly, like by wealth plan, I mean that's something that is stress tested for these very moments that we're talking about, kind of bringing it back to what you were saying. So at Monument, we stress test our clients' financial planning scenarios that we build for them using Monte Carlo analysis. So it's very common across the industry. So you'll hear this other advisors using as well. Monte Carlo analysis is basically what I'm doing is I'm building this sort of complicated, complex puzzle that we were talking about, all your different pieces, all your different what ifs. And rather than saying, okay, you'll get a 7% return every year. And what does that look like? I'm taking that scenario that we're building and I'm running it through a model that basically does a thousand different iterations of market performance and looks at out of those a thousand different scenarios, how many times do you basically have money left over in the bank? So it's accounting for years where you have a lot of positive market returns, but it's also accounting for this kind of what if fear we're in right now of what if we go into a recession, there's a lot of negative return years stacked on top of each other. And, you know, how does that impact my long-term probability of success? And if that were still the case, could I still make some of the decisions that I'm making today? And that's where it's giving you the probability of success. It's looking at out of those different 1,000 iterations of market performance, how likely are you still to be able to have money left over while still accomplishing all of these things that we've modeled in the plan? So that's where it's not just something that is comprehensive in looking at your plan, but it is stress tested so that in these moments, you can say, hey, my plan was stress tested already for down market years. And I know that I still have a 90% probability of success. I feel really good about that. In the off chance that we're in those 10% bad scenarios where you're running out of money, you know what? That's where I talk about there's model world and then there's human actual real life world. Model world is going to assume you're just making the same choices. You're spending the same amount plus inflation every year. You're still doing all these things. Whereas in reality, if we were in like a multi-year recession, you know, maybe you're making a choice not to do some very extravagant overseas trip that year. Or maybe you're making the choice of I'm going to work one more year. And, you know, so you're, you're making human behavior choices that could potentially get you back on track of being in the 90% positive scenario situation. So, but again, it's all about confidence in the decision that you're making, knowing that, okay, 
my plan was set up where where it accounted for this, what we're going through right now. So I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to stick to the plan. And I'm not going to get obsessed with what the news headlines are. I'm not going to get discouraged that, oh, my God, markets are down. Should I sell? Because I don't want it to be less. Like, I have a plan, and I'm just going to stick to that plan and have confidence in that plan because it was really thoughtfully built. It accounted for everything in my life, you know, personal and financial. And it's something that, you know, I can kind of hold to in these moments where, as we've talked about on the podcast before, your human behavior wants to change how you act. So I'll wrap up with one quote just to put it out there. There's a quote that I've always really liked from FDR that says, a smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. So this is your moment, if you're listening to this, to stop winging it, to get out of your own way, and basically become a more skillful steward of your wealth. Right. That's such a great quote. It's such a valuable review of the wealth plan. Because there's a couple things that you said in there that I'm going to reiterate back in my own words, which is when you say we're stress testing a plan over, over a thousand times, each one of those thousand times is including 20% pullbacks in that one of a thousand times. And we're doing that a thousand times. So what's happening right now is already built into a properly constructed wealth management plan just by virtue of running it a thousand times. So if, if the probability of success of a of a well-constructed wealth management plan is I'm just gonna make up a number to say 85%, which means there's 15% of the times that it doesn't work out of a hundred, or there's 15 times out of a hundred that it doesn't work. Your point was that you're gonna see those things coming. It's like going to the doctor when you're 45 years old and they say you're overweight, you need to lose some weight because you're gonna you're gonna be in really bad shape. You're gonna need to be on diabetes, right. about to send, you know, right, if exactly. you don't make you know changes to your right. Health. So you make yeah. changes, and you make changes to your financial plan and your wealth plan, just like you do anything else. If if you think you're in one of those 15 out of 100 times, but the other 85 times out of 100, something like this has been built into the model, and your probability of success already incorporates and reflects times like this. So now it comes back to, hey, what about right now? okay, I got it. I've got this long-term probability of success, but what about right now, this very second? And that's where we kind of keep coming back to the broken record of the cash. If you've got the cash, you don't have to worry about this right now because it's already modeled into the long-term. Right. So yeah, two things on that. And one, I mean, you mentioned like right now, I know that if you are imminently approaching retirement or you're newly retired, you know, having a market pullback right now, it's a very stressful thing, right? So that's where we talk about sequence of return risk. The idea that if you're pulling money out when the market is down at the start of your retirement, it can have a long-term impact on the value of your portfolio. So that's where, to bring it back to the modeling, I mean, something else that if you have a good wealth plan and you're very close to retirement, something else that you should be doing is is stress testing, building in the, the specific scenario of what if there is a bear market right at the start of my retirement and you can model sort of different assumptions as far as what the market is down, for how long, things like that. So, you know, putting yourself kind of in that position of, okay, I want to further layer in that element. But the second thing I want to kind of connect your wealth plan, the financial planning and the asset management pieces, is this is where an investment policy statement is really comes into play. That it's really important, regardless of your stage of life, to have one because that's what's going to spell out, okay, how much cash are you going to keep? Where are you going to keep it? How are you going to generate cash? If you're in retirement, you know, how is income going to be generated in your portfolio and sent to you? You know, what is the risk level of your portfolio? Like all of these things where 
again, when things get choppy, you can kind of come back to, okay, my investment policy statement, which I had agreed to when, you know, I was level-headed and, and things were going okay in the market, it was this. It's, again, that's another plan that you can kind of hold to and remind yourself, okay, this is what we agreed to and this is what's going to help me, you know, stay on track and get through a rough market period. Right. And so for people listening, this is a little bit of a commercial here, but but there's a couple different types of people who are listening right now. There are the people who have a well-constructed wealth management plan and they're fine and they understand this and they're listening and they're saying like, I'm really glad I did all of that. This makes me feel good. Jessica and Dave so far have just reminded me why I went through all of this hard work and everything is fine. They've been tuning up their wealth management plan. They've been updating their assumptions. You know, refining things, things it. Refining because things change all the time. It's it's not a plan. It's planning. And then there's people who are like, geez, you know, I just listened to all of this and I am looking at the 20% pullback. And what I just realized was, you know what, it probably is time for me to update my assumptions. Things have changed. I haven't talked about my wealth management plan in a year and a half or two years and and some things have changed or my perspective on things have changed or whatever. So great. Or I don't have one. Right, I was getting right. to that. That's the okay. third, right, right. right so there's the, the people out okay. there who have one. They're like, yeah. you know what? It probably is time to get in touch with you guys and update. So like, look, if you're if you're a client and you feel like that right now, give us a call and, and get back in touch with us and let's get assumptions. And, you know, sometimes just talking just helps. And then there's people listening who aren't clients and they, they don't have a plan at all. And they're th- and they're hearing this and they're saying, geez, I should really get, okay. So when this podcast is over, cause you have to listen to the whole thing, by the way, it's the rule, call your advisor up and say, listen, I, I want to update my, well, and if you have an advisor that doesn't do a wealth management plan, that does the Monte Carlo testing, that does the analysis, that does the cash flow forecasting, that really models your wealth plan out, you hang up the phone and find a new advisor immediately. I'm using my parentheses now. Our number's on our website. <laughs> but really, I mean, you know, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. But seriously, if your advisor doesn't do those things, you have the wrong advisor. Or if your advisor doesn't do those things and you're just casually listening to this and you don't think you need it, I mean, that's fine. There's plenty of advisors out there who just manage money and people don't have a plan. And I understand that not everything is for everybody. But if any of this is resonating with you, either get it fixed with who you're using or give us a call. And if you're with Monument and you feel like it hasn't been a while since you've updated your assumptions or, or you just want to talk, just give us a call. And you know, with that, we'll, now we can talk about all the fun that we've been having for the past six months before Aaron totally falls asleep on us here on the other end of the, uh, the line. <laughs> yeah, I want to I bring Aaron in. So give us a quick stat rundown of you know, how we've been doing, you know, how markets have been doing in the second quarter, but also would love to hear also year to date as well, kind of what's been going on. Yeah, I mean, so it's not going to shock anyone that the numbers have been pretty bad year to date, right? So coming off the second quarter, it's the the worst quarter that we've had since the pandemic. And when you look at the stock and bond markets, you know, the S&P and the AG, it's it's the worst start for both those markets since, you know, 1970 at least, and I think for bonds it's the worst start on record since they've created those indices. So it's been it's been pretty bad year to date, and the investors have kind of gotten it with both barrels, so to speak, with with both double digit drawdowns on stocks and bonds. It just hasn't been hasn't been fun. And of course, we've we've been dealing with something now that we haven't really had to deal with in most investors' lifetimes, which is inflation, which is been coming in in the high single digit range. So it's been pretty bad, you know, all around for investors year to date, unless you've been invested, you know, outside of stocks and bonds in some places like, you know, commodities, which are historically a really difficult place to invest because they, they can be incredibly volatile and they can rock it upwards, but by that same token, they can rock it down as well. So it's been rough sledding year to date. 
you know, Aaron, you were talking about the ag. You can look at the ag, the U.S. aggregate bond index. You can look at that. Bloomberg's got an index. But just an easy way for anybody to quickly track this is just use the ETF ticker AGG. They're within 75 basis points of each other. But, you know, down 10, 10 and change percent by the end of the year. I'm looking, I'm looking at year to date. So it's incorporated a little bit of July in there too. But, you know, 10 and a half percent, I'm going to round it between the, the index and the actual ETF on the ag. And then you know, S&P was down 19 and change. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, that, that just hurts, but it's also not unprecedented. 20% pullbacks happen all the time. I heard a statistic saying that this was the worst start to a calendar year since the seventies. And when you, when you hear something like that, you think, God, that's just awful. That's so terrible. But when I heard that, I thought, well, that leaves out all of the other times that there's been a 20% pullback. So who cares if it's been the worst start to a year since 1970? It's down 20%. So it doesn't matter if that happens in the first half of a calendar year. It doesn't matter if it happens in December of 2018. It doesn't matter if it happens in 2016. It doesn't matter if it happens in 2012. It doesn't matter. I mean, the time period is almost irrelevant. It's about the absolute loss of the money from the high and a 20% pullback, regardless of what the time frame is, is a 20% pullback. It doesn't matter how long it's been, when it happened, a 20% pullback hurts. It's a bear market. We are experiencing a bear market peak to trough, 20% pullback in the S&P 500. And that hurts and it feels bad. And then the news is talking about recession, recession. Everybody's talking about inflation and interest rates and oil and everything else. And Aaron, I'll, I'll introduce the topic of talking about the recession by saying this. It doesn't matter if technically we're in a recession or not because it feels like we're in one. And the stock market is acting like we're in one. So whether or not we have two back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth or whatever the technical definition, that may or may not happen. But at the end of the day, everyone feels like we're in a recession. So I'm going to jump in because I know we kind of talked about this on our last quarterly market update podcast. Like, And you guys kind of have a different difference of opinion. So I, I want to I wanna see if it's still... You still disagree or you agree? Cordially disagree, I should yeah, say. I, so, yeah, Aaron, I mean, I'm going to let you jump in here, but I'll, I'll just say, like, I don't know if it's so much of a disagree. I think, I think Aaron and I do a lot of yeah, but. Right. right. It's like that. It's sort of like, yeah, but, you know, and that, that's the whole thing. You just can't fork. There's nothing that says, absolute. hey, absolute, yeah. Right. Yeah, but, right. But Aaron, I, you know, I know you definitely have some opinions on this and I've got some yeah, buts and then you've got some yeah, buts to mine, but. Well, I'm going to ask the question and then Aaron. You go first, and then Dave, counterpoint. Okay. Are we in a recession? I'm going to say that we are, and I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. I don't know if I'm officially out and riding with anything in the Monument blogs. I may have to be, or I may be out there with something officially published, but I've been talking at least internally and anecdotally among my friends and family that we've been in a recession since about March, I was going to say. Now, Dave, to your point, whether you know, whether win-win or not, does it really matter for markets, right? Because markets are forward-looking. You could argue it doesn't matter that we're in one. But I'd say that we're, we're already in one to some extent. I think it's debatable, the severity of it. But as we all know, like you don't really know that you're in a recession until after the fact, right? It's typically a backward-looking, you know, indicators where you get various governmental entities that come out with, you know, measures of GDP growth. And in fact, I think the the official definition of a recession by, I think it's the the BEA, right? The Bureau of Economic Analysis or the BLS. I can't remember who puts it out, 
but it's two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. And we got that in the first quarter. And in fact, I probably should have come in a little prepared knowing when the second quarter GDP stats come out. But I, I definitely think that we're in one. And you can look at a, a lot of gauges out there. I, I tend to look to see what's happening with, with commodities. Commodities tend to be a pretty good forward-looking indicator, at least, of where the, the global economy is going. And of course, in the, the first part of, of 2022, we've had you know, absolutely on fire commodities, which has been, you know, leading to some pretty bad inflation. But you look now, if you, if you, you know, pull up any charts or just take a look at the numbers, you know, commodities have, have rolled over hugely here recently. Copper, which is historically been a, a huge, you know, macroeconomic indicator. I think I read yesterday that it's back to December, 2020 levels, and it's been down over 20% in a month. And then of course, everyone's favorite commodity oil, which is loosely linked, not there's not a one for one correlation here with gas prices, but loosely linked to gas prices. You know, oil has entered at least a short term bear market territory as well. So if we were, you know, in a, a strongly trending economy, you would expect to see those huge gains in commodities, maybe not continue at a really high trajectory, but you at least see them, you know, level off and stay high and they're actually, you know, rolling over quite hard. And in tandem, you're getting some signals out of the bond market that, hey, maybe we are in a recession or heading into, you know, recessionary levels where the stock market has continued to, to be, you know, quite volatile and to continue to sell off. But here recently, I know we said that bonds are down, you know, over 10% year to date, but bonds have had a quite a nice run over the last couple of weeks. So it's my contention, again, that we're, we're in a recession, that we've been in one for a while. I think the thing that's debatable is, is how bad is it, right? You're not seeing it come in in the employment numbers. And Dave, I know you've got a, a few things that you look at that suggest that if we're in a recession, it's not that bad, or in fact, we might not be. But that's where I'm at right now, that we were in a recession, probably somewhat of a shallow one. And as we'll talk about, does it matter? But Dave, I want to get your your take on this first. Yeah. So again, I just want to reiterate, I think people say like, well, there's two guys at Monument who don't think the same thing. What the hell's going on over there? It's not like that, right? It's just that we do this, yeah, budding all the time. And and Nate's who are new new on the asset management team, he's jumping in on it too. And it's just that we're having healthy discussions about where we are. But again, it, it really doesn't matter. The market's down 20%. So if we're in a recession or we're not in a recession, it doesn't really matter. Market's down 20%. That's what people feel. So I just want to reiterate that it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It doesn't really change anything. It's just a fun conversation to have. And I look back. At, so Aaron, you're talking about copper. I'll even throw this out without really knowing the actual numbers on this. But I have a sneaking suspicion that, well, I shouldn't say sneaking suspicion. I know it's true. The price of lumber has come down as well. So copper, lumber, I haven't read a report on it, but I just know because I went to buy a sheet of plywood the other day. And I just know that lumber prices are down from where they were earlier this year for the same piece of plywood. So I'm just going to say two by fours are probably down also. So lumber. And we used to talk a lot in the blog about housing and cars and how those things really drove the economy. And the housing market is important for the overall economy because because when somebody buys a new house or somebody moves into a new apartment or they change where they're living, that prompts a lot of buying. Pots and pans, sofas, TVs. When someone buys one house, it goes out all over the economy in terms of spending. And then cars are a big deal too because every single component in the car is, is made by an, another company and a lot of small businesses too. So when 
car sales are doing well and home sales are doing well, it's a pretty good indication that the economy is doing well and will continue to do well. The housing market is still doing pretty well, although, asterisk, here's my yeah, but to myself, I mean, with mortgage interest rates recently hitting almost 6%, I think they're down a little bit off of that now, but still in the fives, I have a funny feeling that the housing market is going to slow down if it has not already. And then that, that's going to slow the economy down. So that could be a component that pushes us into a recession. But as of right now, for second quarter, I don't know if that's really played into it or not. And then cars, car sales, again, not knowing the number off the top of my head, but they generally trend in the sixteen to 18,000 car range. And I think we're in the 13s now. But the big reason for that is there is a supply issue going on because of the supply chain. So there's not a lot of supply of cars. So cars really aren't being sold because there just aren't cars. And I also think that the higher interest rates are going to curtail car sales as well. So that's going to impact the economy. So I do see some things that are going to slow the economy down and bring inflation back down. But to your point, Aaron, about the recession, I mean, the stock market is bad, but I see the economic data as okay. And the word okay is not the same thing as great or good. It's just, it's okay, right? I got one foot in a bucket of hot water. I got one foot in a bucket of ice water. And overall, I am okay, right? (laughs) So there's a lot of different buckets of data here. But in the first five months of this year, we've seen manufacturing production up somewhere in the 6% annualized rate, mid sixes. We've seen non-farm payrolls. Those are up an average monthly pace of about 488,000. The unemployment rate actually dropped from 39 to 3.6%. And in April, we saw consumer spending and real personal income at record highs. So when I see things like that, I think, my God, look, if we're in a recession, it's like a recession that we've never seen before because those numbers are, are pretty good. And I do, Aaron, I agree with you. And I've been saying this in the blog, we will have a recession. We will. I'm just not convinced that we're actually in one right this second. And again, it really doesn't matter. But here's here's my silver lining on this, is that if we are not in a recession and the market is pricing one in, but we're not in one, there could be a rebound that will bring us back off that 20% down. It will add back to it. It's a weird way of saying, like, we're going to go up and get some of the losses. We're going to curtail some of the losses if that's the case. And that's something you can't project as well either, which kind of leads us back to the, you know, hey, stay fully invested, have the cash, because you just don't know when things are going to come back. I want to jump in. So if someone listening to this has cash right now, money to invest, and it's money that they would want to invest for the long term, so not needed in the short term, should they invest it in stocks or should they keep it in cash a little longer? It all kind of depends. And Jessica, you already gave us the assumption that it's long-term money. I would argue that for someone who's got a longer, and I said that's relative, right? A longer time frame, that it's sort of a, a no-brainer for stocks here. Now, is this going to be the bottom in stocks right now? You know, 20% down in the S&P, 30% down in the NASDAQ. You know, we can't say unequivocally that this is the bottom. It's a lot closer to the bottom than we were in earlier this year. So I'd say, I'd argue it's a pretty good, you know, long-term entry point for investing in stocks for sure. You know, there's another guess, right? There's another, but I'll say this, I'm going to invent a scenario. Let's just say that you're the kind of investor who's been listening to our advice for a long time and you've got 18 months of cash sitting in the bank 
And over the past six months, you really haven't dipped into it. In other words, your current income and job situation has not changed and you really haven't dipped into that money. And you're like, well, geez, if I haven't dipped into it while the market's been down 20%, you know, and I'm still sitting on the, the same full bucket of cash, maybe I could put some of it to work right now. I would say this, if anybody puts available cash to work for the long term right now, I don't know if the market's going to go down another 10%, 15%, 20% from here. And I don't know if it's going to go up 20% or 15% from here. But here's what I do know. If you put that money to work right now and fell asleep like Rumpelstiltskin, who's the person that fell asleep for like 30 years? Rip Van Winkle? Okay, whatever. <laughs> the person who fell asleep for 30 years and woke up, you're going to be very happy with where you put money to work today. Wake up in five years the market will be higher. That's what I think has a very high probability yeah. so of happening. Be, so be okay if you invest it and the money goes down a little bit. You got to, you know, be okay with that, right? Yeah. But to your point, Five years. If, if you keep that time horizon, that those eyes on the horizon, not on, on the ground on what's happening day to day in the market, it's probably going to go up. It's not definite, but right. probably. I was talking with a client actually just yesterday about this, you know, putting some cash to work in stocks and- I told this client, like, you know, it's been my experience and this isn't, you know, this is more of the, the art of investing than it is the science, although I'm sure there's some science behind this, right? Is whenever you feel the worst about investing someplace, you know, whether it's stocks, bonds, anytime you're, you've got money that you're looking to put to work and you just feel bad about it, where it's sort of gut-wrenching to you, my personal experience has been that's typically the best time to be investing, Right. I know it doesn't always work out like that, but more often than not, going against your gut can work in this instance. I know there's some behavioral finance there. I just look back. I remember in in March of 2020 during COVID, I remember pacing around my apartment at the time, you know, just gut-wrenching like everyone else and thinking, man, this would be a great time to put some some money to work. And I remember doing it for myself and for some other you know clients, right? We had these conversations and, you know, actually pushing the button to buy stocks at a time when it was a really tough environment went against your being, right? Like it just went against everything that your mind is telling you. When we look back, right, that ended up being one of the absolute best times to buy. So anecdotally, from a behavioral standpoint, if you're you're thinking about putting some money to work in the market and your your gut's telling you, no, this, this isn't going to work, this is a terrible time to invest – more often than not, it's actually probably a pretty good indicator. It is a good time to invest. Yeah, I think in the interest of having some fun discussing this, I'll throw these things out. Because here are the things that I think need to change or people need to see some improvement on or change in in order for this to probably be the bottom, right? The first is there's got to be some sort of termination to the rising interest rate expectations. And I don't see that yet, especially after the minutes that came out yesterday, right? So. I think there's got to be some sort of clarity on when rates will stop going up. I think there needs to be some sort of conclusion or credible signs of a conclusion to the Ukraine situation. I just think that global volatility is not good for establishing a market bottom. I think there needs to be some visibility in what's going on with the Chinese economy as it relates to their lockdowns for COVID because China is a huge component to the global economy and to the supply chain. If they're in lockdowns, they're not manufacturing. If they're not manufacturing, we've got a supply chain problem. 
And I think there needs to be some sort of stabilization of the U.S. dollar, right? Okay, so those are just four things. Just throw them out there. I don't know if you can forecast any of those things happening with any sort of clarity. So it's possible that we're not at a bottom. But of those four things, there will eventually be clarity on all of them. And I don't think it's going to take 10 years, five years, or even three years for those things to happen. So therefore, in the short term, it's impossible to predict when we're going to see a market bottom. But going back to the end, by the way, it's Rip Van Winkle, not Rumpelstiltskin. I don't know. can't remember. I mean, you know, (laughs) they're similar names. I have to remember that like, okay, that really good bourbon Pappy Van Winkle will put me to sleep. That's how I'm going to remember this from now on. Okay. (laughs) But- if you wake up in five years, I think there's a lot of clarity on those, just, just those four things that I mentioned, and this will all be behind us. So I want to bring us back to just, again, reflecting on the quarter and year to date. What are some of the things that Monument did this past quarter or year thus far that have worked? Yeah, I mean, I'd say you know positioning client stock portfolios where it's applicable, of course, towards customized single stock models that allow us to take advantage of market volatility and the way of tax loss harvesting, right? So all we're doing there is if you've got a collection of stocks that meet certain criteria, maybe you're recreating a benchmark in some instances, inevitably you get a, a handful of your stocks, possibly more that sell off. You end up selling the stocks that are trading at a loss. You buy similar stocks that were contributing to the portfolio or would contribute to the portfolio in the same way that the stocks you just sold were and you maintain your market exposure. So it's sort of, you know, making the best of a bad situation. So we've done a lot of that year to date. I know it's it's sort of, you know, bass backwards to be investing to take losses, and that's not what we're doing. But being able to position people to where, you know, when when the markets are choppy or or down a lot like they are on a year-to-date basis, you know, to build some type of a loss war chest for future, to offset future capital gains, that's something we've been doing this year that's really worked out. And I'd also say, you know, if longtime clients and and readers of our content, you hear us talk about the flexible asset allocation model, which we we always abbreviate as FAA. So if you hear FAA, that's what I mean. That's done a pretty good job on a year-to-date basis in terms of mitigating volatility within client portfolios. Now, just on an absolute basis, it, it hasn't done as great a job as I would have liked to have seen it done, but it's done a pretty good job of locking onto trends and at least giving us some some direction with where the broader markets are going. Yeah, I think, you know, as we talk about single stock portfolio and indexing, now is an interesting time to make sure that everybody remembers that the S&P 500 index is a, is a market cap weighted index. The Dow Jones is the price cap weighted index. So if you don't know what those two things mean, research that real quick. But that's why the S&P 500 is usually a better overall indication of what's going on. So the stocks that have the highest market cap, think like Microsoft and Apple and Amazon, things like that, they have a higher impact on the overall level of the S&P 500 than, say, Briggs & Stratton, like a small engine manufacturer or something like that. So when you say like, well, geez, I can just buy the index and, okay, fine, you're consciously buying stocks that have been underperforming and will tend to keep underperforming as interest rates go up versus single stock selection where maybe you're looking at some potential for better earnings. So in the world of the argument over indexing versus active management, this is why Aaron and I and everybody here at Monument, we all believe in that there's pistons in an engine and there can be pistons that are driven by indexing and there are pistons that can be driven by single stock performance. 
And so to Aaron's point about single stock selection, I mean, I actually think that that will do pretty well because it won't be in the things that have been doing very poorly with a rising interest rate environment. But then there's the indexing side of it also where we can tax loss harvest. And that's, that's very valuable too. So those pistons acting in concert with each other is a very powerful component to a portfolio construction strategy. Yeah. I, so definitely having, you know, different parts of the portfolio that are doing well when other parts aren't doing as well, it's definitely important, right? From a portfolio construction standpoint and, you know, having something like trend following and flexible asset allocation and FAA and pairing that with single stock models that, you know, may or may not have tax loss harvesting capabilities on them. That's really powerful. And, you know, chances are, you know, in any given market environment, something's going to be working well for you. That's what we're trying to do is to ensure that, A, we're we're not going to blow you up, you know, blow up the portfolio, right? Because you look at everyone's, you know, obvious stock picks over the last few years, which have been concentrated in something like the NASDAQ index, which is U.S. large, you know, large cap growth. So there's a lot of tech stocks. Well, that hasn't been a really good, obvious place to be, you know, year to date down over 30%. So, you know, really trying to avoid those blowups for for clients, that's really important. And so that's why we've got those proverbial pistons in the engine. So I want to wrap up by asking each of you to give the listener a parting thought or words of wisdom. So Aaron, I'll start with you. My parting thought is a little more, you know, esoteric. I think I mentioned this last time I was on the podcast with you guys. But we talked about talking about risk assets and speculation and sort of where things are from a risk-taking perspective in markets. And I mentioned that there are all of these billboards featuring cryptocurrencies here in Austin. And there's a really famous one on Highway 290, which some people call the Tesla Turnpike. I actually haven't heard a lot of people say that, but it's been mentioned to me, so I'm going to run with it. So 290, the Tesla Turnpike in South Austin, for the longest time there was a billboard that said, Crypto is annoying until crypto is inspiring. And it has one of the the board ape like NFTs on it, right? That billboard over the last couple of weeks has since become a pest control advertisement. So take that for what it's worth. I actually think that's a good sign in terms of tamping down speculation and kind of, you know, clearing out the brush in the market. It's probably a good thing from a long-term perspective for markets. And I'm not advocating for it, but I think crypto, you get about a year of, of that and all these billboards coming down. I actually think the cryptocurrency landscape could be interesting over the next couple of years. So that's sort of my parting esoteric thought. Yeah, there's there's always something, right? It's NFTs or SPACs. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't turn on the TV or read anything a year, year and a half ago, two years ago about, you know, anything other than SPACs. And we actually wrote some blogs on SPACs and why we didn't think they, they were a good investment. And guess what's happening to SPACs now? So there's always going to be something that's trying to capture everybody's attention to, you know, invest in and generate a lot of wealth in a short amount of time. And I guess my parting thought is those things always tend to disappoint a large population of people who invest in them. There's always some people who do make money and those people who do make money off of it are held out as examples to the rest of the people who are losing money on it. So I'll come back to my point off of that, which is, I like to talk about possibilities and probabilities. I like to talk about those things all the time. Is it possible that the market goes down from here substantially more? Absolutely. What is the probability of that happening? Well, I can say this with some conviction. The probability of it going down anymore is lower now because 
the S&P 500 is now trading at a 25-year average forward price-to-earnings ratio, whereas before it was way higher. So if we have come down to a more reasonable valuation on, as indicated by the forward price-to-earnings ratio, the probability of it going down is lower just because we're at the average right now. So back to, is it a good time to put cash to work? Should people stay fully invested? Should they be following their wealth management plan? My answer to that and my parting thought is the probability of success is still very good, even though there is a possibility that the market can still go down some more. So in the world of possibilities and probabilities, I like to talk about probabilities. I think there's a pretty good probability that in five years, three years from now, whatever this 20% or more possibly in the future, it will correct it will come back. And for people who are patient, stick with the plan, they're going to be okay. Just like Rip Van Winkle was when he woke up from his 20 year nap in the Catskills Mountains and missed the whole American Revolution. So, because I Googled that while everybody else was talking. Yeah. If, if you've learned anything <laughs> from this episode, it's, it's about Rip, Rip Van, Van Winkle. Winkle. Right. <laughs> so, with that, there's our value proposition, right? Always some good trivia here at Monument Wealth Management. So, yeah. Thanks so much. That was a great Aaron. discussion. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, thanks, guys. Glad to be here. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.